welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, where we talk about politics, the culture war, and anything else that comes up. And we have another very special guest, the co-chair of Heart and the author of a brilliant new book called Expired. It's Dr. Claire Craig. Thanks so much for doing the show. Thanks ever so much for having me on, Nick. So this book, everyone should get this book. It's called Expired COVID, The Untold Story. And I've been listening to the audio version, read by you very well. Uh, and I'm, it's a great book. It's, it's covering... It's it's a sort of, uh, well, you can obviously say what it is, but it's a sort of introduction to all, everything weird that happened during COVID. But for the sort of normie listener, not just for the, the sort of hardcore people who might listen to this podcast, who might already be skeptics, but it's kind of aimed at everyone, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the kind of idea for writing it was way back in 2021 when, um, you know, we had this problem that you would start to talk to somebody about um, well, you sort of find one particular facet that you could explain to them. And at the end of the conversation, you might have got them to understand it. And they would walk away and you could almost see as they were walking away that this was not going to fit with the rest of their beliefs. And they were going to be back at square one next time you saw them, right? So I thought you know, the only way to actually solve this problem is to have someone's attention for a considerable period of time. And the only way to get someone's attention really is with a book. So the intention was to write a book that normies could listen to without being offended or or made you feel foolish or confused or, you know, just so that you could understand the breadth of the topic in one sitting. By using the word normie, you've almost outed yourself as a non-normie <laughs> yeah. already, but, uh, but that's okay on this podcast. But um, no, but it, it's interesting, and even you were... Claire, kind of a normie because the book mm. starts with you saying I'm a believer is the, is the chapter heading and it's about how you believed in it all at first which many people did I mean I didn't really but not to brag but um I just <laughs> I don't think I ever believed in any of it I was I, I was pretty disgusted with lockdowns at the start I think I took a sort of comic approach publicly at first but I was pretty early against them on talk radio and things like that but no one really cares because I'm not a doctor they don't care what I think but you were you sort of went along with the masks and the all the sort of lockdowns at the very start, which is good to admit because I think a lot of people are angry now that some of the very anti-lockdown people were initially pro-lockdown and there's a feeling that some of them haven't admitted it. I mean, I think you should welcome anyone that that comes to the the right view. But you've sort of admitted quite clearly in the book that you went along with stuff and then you just, at some point, you realised it was kind of not adding up. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it was really important to tell that part of the story because, you know, first of all, it's true, um, and and secondly, you know, it shows that that that's what well, basically shows what fear can do. You know, I was made to be afraid, and and that's what made me start thinking things that weren't entirely didn't entirely add up. And I was ready to believe quite a lot of stuff because I was quite frightened actually. And and I don't want people who were frightened to feel inferior because they were you know because I was too so I mean that was a sort of way of sort of trying to start at the same level as people to say look you know we, we, we probably started off thinking pretty similarly about this thing and I've come to land in a very different place to you and here's why yeah that's a good way of doing it I mean the only time I was really concerned was really early on because I was reading tweets from America from people like Mike Cernovich and there was a kind of thing where sort of people of a kind of prepper mentality were worried kind of early on and those are people normally on the right or the or the libertarians mm-hmm. and they were worried about do I need dry foods and stuff like this and this is going to be massive but then very early on those people realized it, it, it wasn't going to be what, what was claimed and this is like January 2020 type of time and then and then everyone else then it flipped you had you had like left-wing publications like Salon and the Daily Beast saying don't worry about COVID worry about flu 
while the right-wing preppers in the US were saying yeah, this is going to be massive. And then it flipped completely, showing that yeah. it is, was kind of a political phenomenon from the start. Now, that is an interesting observation. There's, I mean, I've met a lot of people who were like that, that were um, very, very scared of it at the beginning. And who, I think, because of that, were paying very close attention to the details and I think that's why they, they woke up early is because they were, you know, they really wanted to know how deadly it was. And then they found out and then they were like, oh, OK, this is all right. Whereas people who are not paying so much attention were just, you know, t- taking the breadth of it. And there, there was this study by Colin Fode where he showed that the level of fear people had about the virus had nothing to do with the virus. It was entirely based around their perception of the government's response to the virus which makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You know, you think, well, why on earth are they responding like this? You know, that that's all I need to know. They're, if they're responding like this, it must be something terrible. And that's enough. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know what that's called. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy or what it would be called. But it's, yeah, it's like, well, they wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't serious. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, it's a strange sort of faulty reasoning. Yeah, I just remember these early tweets, people saying like, like Mike Cernovich saying something like, "If if this if, if what they're saying is true, we'll all have a loved one that dies or something like that." It was like it was like really it was extreme stuff. And then you were like, "Okay." And then of course, yeah, you started to see through it very quickly. So I never I never went for any of it. And I was I was against lockdowns in principle very from the start. So it was not a, even a medical decision for me. But but for people like me who were who one in terms of fear, one thing that was really strange is that I am a massive hypochondriac, which I readily admit I'm literally seeking help for my health anxiety because it's so extreme and like ruining it got to like life ruining levels but i wasn't bothered about covid at all people were blaming hypochondriacs i'm like don't blame the hypochondriacs it's not us whereas someone like my brother who's not um, a hypochondriac at all but who is like a remainer who's very sort of a part of the system was wearing his mask outside the pub you know and then he'd get up from his bend he'd put it on outside and he'd carry on outside never even went back inside like he wore it to get up from the bench to the outside area you know, very so it always seemed like a political phenomenon very early on, not a, not a health phenomenon, where even hypochondriacs were not worried about it sometimes. Like yeah, me. I mean, there was something about the hypochondria thing where it was definitely created in some people. You know, <clears throat> there were people who yeah. hadn't been before who became hypochondriacs, and there were people who had never been obsessive compulsive before who get, started to get those traits. Um, and there were perhaps people who had a bit of Munchausen by proxy going on as well. You know, all of these, these things that people were behaving very strangely and some of them are continuing to. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? For me, those were sort of a protection. I was like, hang on, I'm, I'm obsessively not touching things and washing my hands, but I know that's a bit mental and that's just something I do. Like, I'm like, don't everyone start doing it. It was, it was like a weirdly, that, that in, a, in a weird way, protecting me against COVID hysteria because I'm a constant low level of, of madness that I know it's kind of irrational. <laughs> Well, so I already have dealt with that as like, you know, I don't, it's really interesting how that, that it was much more political phenomenon. Anyway, you changed your mind. Is there any way, why is it that some people like me, maybe I'm just an idiot, but we were sort of skeptical from the start about lockdowns and about masks and about the safe and effective treatment, as I sometimes call it on YouTube. And Scott Adams claimed that what we were doing was just, we were right, but by chance, because we were applying what he called a basic heuristic i.e. the government is not to be trusted, pretty much. But I, I think it was something more sophisticated than that. I think it was a kind of synthesis of all my years of life experience, looking at what they were saying, things not adding up. But or what, why do you think some people were sort of against all this and, and were perhaps proved right? Or was it just guesswork or was it something about our personalities? 
So, I mean, I think I do, I hear what you're saying with that. And that's kind of interesting because I really, really tried to fight against that myself because having, you know, sort of woken up my, the issue that sort of woke me up was around diagnostic testing, which is my area of expertise. And so within that little facet, I was quite confident that things were not being done correctly. And then when I sort of, you know, spoke publicly, I found lots of people introduced themselves to me who had concerns in their areas of expertise. And for each of them, I'm like, well, how do I know you're not just, you know, an outlier and you're just wrong and you're a minority in your profession? And and so sort of each of them, I had to kind of go back to first principles and say, well, is what this person's saying right or not? Um, and there, uh, several times I started thinking, well, you know, it can't, they can't all be right. You know, they can't all be right because I'm just sort of obviously being sucked into this belief system that's different to us. But, you know, and some, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think now, I'm trying to think of some things that weren't right. So there are some things that have gone a, a bit too far that really aren't right, like microchips, right? You know, I don't think that people have been microchipped. And I don't think, um, um, I, d- I think that masks could have worked if spread was through droplets, which is what was believed at the time, because, you know, droplets are big and they would be stopped by a bit of cloth. The thing is, it spread isn't through droplets. So that was didn't didn't you know make any sense. Um, and so, you know, I think it is important to not always be contrary and in fact even with the safe and effectives when they first when they first rolled out there were people sort of on our side who were speaking about their concerns around the sort of issues that might develop which you know they will write about in retrospect and I was thinking you yeah, these guys are, are being a bit paranoid and that the evidence from the pharmaceutical industry sort of sound looked you know pretty okay and we sort of had to suck it and see before deciding it was all going to be a problem. And I actually honestly believed, as did most people in heart, except many of whom were vaccinated because they were healthcare workers, um, that they, it would probably work, right? We thought it was going to work. And we were kind of a bit annoyed by it because we thought the end result was going to be the government claiming that the first lockdown was solved by, the first wave was solved by lockdown, and the second wave was solved by the, the safe and effectives, and that they were then the heroes of it all, and that, that would be pretty much the end of it. So it was only through carefully watching what happened in the real world that we started to worry about what was going on there. Um, but, but that wasn't our starting point. You know, we, we're not contrary people. Um, as a principle, we just we were just concerned about one thing because of the evidence, and another thing because of the evidence as it came out. Okay, yeah. So you arrived at it from diagnostic testing, and then other people in similar fields coming to you with with their data. I arrived at it through sheer contrarianism, but we got to the same place. But um, one thing, in terms of people on sort of my side going too far, one thing I noticed from the book was you said that there's no. The idea that COVID can't be spread outside has no evidence base. So one, people like me might look at someone with a mask indoors and think, well, that's a shame. Then we look at them walking around with a mask outdoors, you think, well, they're an absolute idiot. But you're actually saying here that there's no reason to say it can't be spread outside. And maybe we can also get into this droplets thing, which is a big part of the book where where maybe, maybe we'll do the outside one first. So that's because you're saying it's, it's, it's spread by aerosol. Therefore, there isn't really proof. You say that you open a window there's this idea of opening windows, but all that's going to do is push it outside. And mm-hmm. if there's enough ultraviolet light, that will cancel it. But mm-hmm. there may not be in England. And then there might be wind, but that might just push it somewhere else, etc. Am I right? 
That's exactly right. And yeah, so the, the main thing is that people have this great belief that ultraviolet light is going to kill it immediately on the spot as soon as it's, as soon as it's in outside of an indoor environment. But the, not only do we not have ultraviolet light much in the day in the UK, we don't have any in the night. And in the winters, we have a lot of really long nights where you know aerosols could travel a long long way with no problem from uv light and there's also experiments that have been done where viruses have been collected from the air so they've done this in the mountains um sort of high mountains in spain about a mile above sea level and they've also done it um with air above the sea and found you know huge numbers of bacteria and viruses that are just present in the air all of the time and these are you know this is in the daytime this isn't just nighttime collection this is this is what's around um so i think you know that I, I think uv light does destroy viruses i'm not saying it doesn't i think it does in a lab environment you can show it does but it's it's not that sort of absolute panacea that it's presented as being um and you know the truth is that aerosols do hang in the air and we know from SARS-1 right so in SARS-1 there's this lovely study of an apartment block in Hong Kong where they had several towers arranged in a kind of hexagon shape and somebody was infected in a lower apartment and based on the air currents around the apartment blocks they predicted who else was going to get infected and got it really got it bang on so the people in higher up flats in the direction of the wind were the ones that ended up getting SARS-1 and they'd not met this person in the other flat and you know we also have all the stories about people spreading it in isolation hotels down the corridor to people that they've never met um so there's all sorts of evidence but it all just it was ignored because of this very firm belief that the scientific community has about close contact transmission being the only way that these things spread yeah, and that's a key part of the book. You you talk about the, basically the droplet transmission. This is my understanding has been sort of overplayed versus aerosol transmission. Plus, there was also a key mistake about the size of droplets, mm. and so they got this wrong. And then the WHO based everything on this, and they said, okay, it can only spread by close contact, which therefore justifies lockdowns and social distancing and all that. Yeah, yeah. So the the story is that. Um, in fact, it really all goes back to 1910, right? In 1910, there was this guy in Providence, Rhode Island, who was a public health official. And he wrote a book which sort of became the main public health textbook of the time um, on infectious diseases. And um, he's quite a character and you can kind of get a real feel for him from this book because he's got he's a bit of a germaphobic and he'll talk about how he has to touch windowsills and the handles on the trolley um the the kind of public transport that he's on or he'll have to um, share a book where someone else has licked their finger before they've turned the pages you're like okay okay this guy really doesn't like germs and this is not a healthy way of responding to the world um and he knew and he was right that if you separated hospital beds on infectious disease wards then the patients caught less from each other. And he was really passionate about getting people to do that. And they weren't doing it because they still believed that things spread through the air. So there wasn't much point in separating the beds in that way. Um, and so this was back in 1910. So it was a long time after the germ theorists had sort of won their battle to be heard against the miasma theorists. But there was this sort of hangover of, of kind of old wife tales beliefs about spread through the air from the miasma theorists. And he just wanted to just put them to bed because, you know, it was decades after they'd shown it was germs. 
it was important that we did stuff to prevent germ spreading and this belief that it could spread to the end meant people weren't doing what they needed to do. And you think, well, actually, that he had a point. And you think he, he did make probably make a difference to people by making his point really strongly. And he makes it really strongly. And he knows he's over-egged his case. So he, as part of doing it, he says, the thing is that for influenza, it appears so suddenly all over the world all at once that it couldn't possibly be person-to-person transmission. The masters doesn't add up for it to be person-to-person in that way. And so he comes up with an explanation for that, which is that it must be lots of people who are asymptomatic who are spreading it. So he invents this myth of asymptomatic spread to explain this phenomenon that doesn't fit his other belief that he wants to really stick with. Um, But he doesn't really have the evidence to back that up. It's just a sort of fudge to make his hypothesis work. But he ends the book saying, you know, this is just what we know at the moment. We're bound to learn more. I'm bound to have oversimplified things. And, you know, this is just this is just sort of where we're at with our knowledge. And there's a lot to learn. And that's, you know, this is well over 100 years ago. And so if we sort of interviewed him today and started blaming him for the situation that we're in, it would be very unfair. But he would say to us, guys, what have you been doing in all this time? (laughs) Why haven't you figured this stuff out more? Because we really, really haven't. And there's something quite extraordinary about what happened with that germ theory story. So, you know, the, the germ theory scientists, as I said, they had to really, really fight to be heard. And I think when that happens, people can end up going down a bit of a purity spiral. And so when in doing that, they adopted several beliefs that weren't really backed up by their evidence. And then they bring all those beliefs across with them when they win their battles. Right. And to to such an extent that when I've been talking about aerosol transmission in public, more than once, quite several times, people have said, oh, my God, you don't believe in germ theory. Like this is this is not the battle we're fighting, guys. You know, you can you can sort of relax about that one, but people really can't. They're like, oh, she's a miasma theorist. Like you're kidding me. We're still fighting a battle from 1850 about this because it became so politicized. And I think that's the real danger when science gets politicized. It, it's really really nasty and it has horrible repercussions for society. Um, and you, and I can see that almost happening now. With, with our side of the argument, you know, there are certain people on our side of the argument who have gone down purity spirals themselves. Um, so people who have managed to prove correctly that there were policy-induced deaths, right? There absolutely were policy-induced deaths from the lockdown and, you know, from the way things were or weren't treated. And that they, they take that and they go a step further and say all of the deaths were policy-induced. You know, there's no need to do that. You know, you don't need to do that. And it is not really evidence based to do that. Um, and it, it, it alienates you now from people who are, you know, trying to make sense of the whole. And then but you can I can almost see a, a theoretical position in the future where if they won that battle, that would become the dogma that, that, that the virus did nothing. Mm-hmm. Which I don't think is true. Right. So just to be really clear, how did the um, this idea about germ theory versus aerosol, how did that how did that affect things in, in COVID then? It just meant that we became obsessed with droplets versus aerosols. And we also had the sizes wrong. You talk about this lentils versus grapefruits thing. Yeah. We- um, so the the same guy, the Providence guy, he would was said in his book that all of the spread was from mouth spray and it would fall 
within six foot of where a person was. So he thought if as long as you were six foot away, there wasn't going to be a problem. And and so this belief about mouth spray, you know, it's still held by most public health officials even now that there's them, and they also believe that the majority of virus was in the mouth spray, which also isn't true. Um, so what the the changing point happened in the 1930s because by the 1930s we had much higher resolution photography, and so people were able to do studies where they were just literally taking pictures of people coughing and sneezing and talking and being able to measure what was coming out. Um, and they could show that essentially anything that is just about visible to the human eye or bigger is what falls to the ground within that six foot distance. But anything smaller than that does something really strange because you might think, well, you know, the smaller it is, the further it can go before it falls to the ground. But obviously it's all under the effect of gravity ultimately. But what happens if it's smaller than that is that it evaporates really rapidly. And so very, very quickly becomes a lot smaller than that. And then it gets, it's, you know, subject to the warm air that it's in because you've just breathed out warm air. So it's going up, not down. Um, and, and so that whole idea, it, it's really hard to um, visualize, isn't it? Because it's because we don't see it. It's just below what we can see. But it's behaving in a way that we wouldn't have anticipated. And so it then can hang in the air and get moved by air currents considerable distances. Um, and so the, the mistake that you alluded to was that um, when these the people doing the high resolution photography, their work was dismissed by the CCD, CDC director at the time, this guy called Alexander Langmuir, who, um, who guess what? He was saying, oh no, they're my asthma theorists. <laughs> this was now in the 1930s and it was still the same battle being fought. And he just wouldn't let them get anywhere. And it was only when he was um, retired from the CDC in his sort of retirement speeches and in his in papers he wrote at the time, he said, actually, no, I was wrong about this. The evidence is really good. They're right. It's aerosol transmission. So this bit of evidence went from being misinformation, if you like, to being accepted truth. And it entered the textbooks. But at the time it entered the textbooks, People were sent there looking retrospectively at the body of work from these people. And they picked out the wrong number for the size of a droplet that would fall to the ground. And, and this happened because they were the same people were working on TB. And for TB, the question isn't really about whether or not it falls to the ground. But what's really important is what's the size of an aerosol that can get deep into the lung to cause an infection because anything that will land higher up in the respiratory tract the body will just deal with and it can't cause an infection so the size cutoff for tb was all about something really tiny that could penetrate the lung and cause an infection and and that size is five microns now in the book you know i mean i can i can kind of handle these numbers because i'm a microscopist and they sort of mean something to me but obviously it's a it's a different world for most people so i've tried to explain it by making everything a thousand times bigger. So I'm a mile high and um, and when I sneeze and cough, I'm pouring out grapefruits <laughs> or at least anything that's larger than a grapefruit is gonna fall to the ground from the mile high giant in the sky. But anything that's smaller than a grapefruit are these aerosols that are gonna rapidly shrink with evaporation. And they end up being around the size of a, well, of a lentil often, but anything between a grapefruit and a lentil is going to end up shrinking and being small and staying in the air. 
And if you can picture that giant, if, I don't know if you really can, but if you can picture that giant and imagine from a mile high, lentil size objects falling rapidly to the ground within the height of that giant's sort of radius, you can see that that, that doesn't look very much like real physics because <laughs> it's not. These are tiny, tiny things that are not going to be, you know, sort of under the influence of that much gravity. Um, but anyway, this number five was picked out and that was the belief became that anything larger than five microns, anything larger than lentil was falling to the ground. And so there wasn't a problem anymore because it's all on the ground. So even though they knew the virus was in these tiny aerosols, they thought these tiny aerosols were also falling to the ground in that size area. And um, when I wrote the book, actually, I, I kind of explained that story. And I had an editor go through it and, and I was hoping the editor would cut some stuff because it, you know, it was felt like it was a bit long. But he said, Clay, you've got to write more about this <laughs> because he said, I don't just I don't believe you. And I can't believe they'd get the number wrong. You've got to explain how this went wrong. So I went a bit deeper into it and it all came about because of a um, difference in meaning of the word airborne. So um the word airborne now to you and me means something carried in the air, right? And that's just obvious to us and it couldn't really mean anything else. But in some of these previous publications from the 30s, airborne meant some something that could cause an infection from the air. And so that, that has a different meaning. And so for the TB papers, for example, you'd say it was airborne because it could cause an infection when it was small enough to be inhaled in the lung, not when it was small enough to be suspended in the air. Okay. And so that difference in wording meant that the wrong number got taken. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it sounds like you say relatively esoteric, but turns out to be a really key part. And, and, and the WHO and CDC didn't include it till spring 21. And even then it was a kind of as an additional thing, mm -hmm. not, not the main focus. And so this has a massive impact on our lives because it was all based on, well, it has to, it's close contact only, which was wrong. And then, so you've all got to stand far apart and, so this fairly esoteric sounding thing about germ theory impacts all our lives because they, they made a key mistake. Um, absolutely, it did. And the thing is that the mistake actually still really hasn't been acknowledged because and one of the problems we have is that the people who did most of the work on this are physicists who had worked on um, pollution, air pollution, and then moved across into infectious disease work, but clearly have the expertise to really figure out about these sorts of things compared to epidemiologists for whom it's important. But they never get invited to the epidemiology conferences and they never get you know, invited into the medical lit literature even. It's a sort of parallel world that they lived in. And they were up in arms at the beginning about aerosol spread because they knew it from the outset and were described as spreading misinformation and all the usual stuff. Um, and they eventually got published. But when they were published, they were doing this thing about reciting from the scriptures that you'll see in so many scientific papers in COVID. So you start off with like millions and millions of people died, you know, because you've got to say that at the beginning. And then you, you show your results, but you write a conclusion that doesn't necessarily reflect the results. So what they were concluding was it's really important to wear masks because that would get them heard when they're saying and to be honest actually I think some of these people believed it too and they still they'll, they'll say it on their own Twitter that you've, you know it's airborne you've got to mask up and and this is really really missing the point so first of all cloth masks don't work and, and actually I don't know if you remember but there was a time in 2021 where the mask evangelists did this pivot where they started saying cloth masks don't work and you have to wear medical grade masks yeah and um, 95s 
Yeah. And so, you know, all of the all of the campaigning, all of the stuff they'd forced on people, there was no apology for that, but they sort of admitted that was useless. And then it became M95s. And N95s are designed to remove aerosols. And it's it's not a mechanical thing. It's a sort of static electricity thing that, so that it can capture the really small small aerosols. But they um, there are problems with it. So the, the first problem is they're not perfect. And any gap in the side will mean that you're still breathing. The most of the air you're breathing will come through any tiny gaps because that's where there's least pressure for the air to move. The second problem is it can spread through your eyes. The third problem is nobody wears these things all the time. Mm. They just, you can't wear them all the time. And um, when you're taking them off, you're exposing yourself to anything that's, that's being breathed onto it, into it. And moreover, if somebody's sick, even if they're in bed at home, if they're sick, they're producing millions and millions of viral particles into the air. And so if you think about, if you actually do the sums on how much virus was produced during a COVID wave, the air is just packed full of virus and everybody ends up being exposed. And you can see that in the maths of the waves because they follow that um, Gompertz trajectory, which is basically where the virus starts off able to surge because there's a lot of people who are susceptible. And then it's struggling harder and harder to find the last people who are susceptible. But it does find them. And that's why you can predict the shape of the curve based on mathematics. It finds them in the end. So anybody who's doing loads of, you know, actively trying to avoid virus in a wave, if they are susceptible to that virus, ultimately they're going to fail. Hmm. Because that's, you know, that is just sort of the mass of, the, of that trajectory. Um, and the other thing about the mass of the trajectory, of course, is that the assumption was we were going to be facing this tidal wave of infections and that the only way to stop it was changing human behaviour. And every time we um, took the sort of foot off the brakes, we were going to have another rebound of, of, of cases and, and hospitalizations and deaths. And people haven't seen this much, but the Imperial team with Neil Ferguson actually published this graph showing how we would have to be locked down for five weeks and then released for two and then locked down again for five, like in perpetuity. That was, the, that was what they thought would happen. They didn't call it lockdown. They'd sort of said restrictions and universities being shut, but you know, restrictions. Um, yeah. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen anywhere. And it would, they never acknowledged that it didn't happen. They carried on with this idea that it would have been 500,000 deaths. But, you know, it's just not true. And the truth is that not everybody was susceptible to each variant. And I think that, to me, I just think that's blindingly obvious that not everyone was susceptible. And, and it's like throughout the data, whichever direction you look at it in, and the key one being that if you... Um, look at a household where there's been an infection and you find out who in that house caught it, then the, the, the figures change depending how you measure it. But Public Health England and then UK Health Security Agency, as they're now called, they were very careful about measuring it and made sure they didn't count someone who probably caught it at the same time as someone they lived with. So if two people catch it at the same time, then you don't want to say that's spread. So they excluded those. And they've got this really consistent number of around 10% with every variant. 10% of people that you live with will catch it from you. You think, well, that's not everyone being susceptible, is it? That's about 10% being susceptible. Hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, the modelling was 
very frustrating. And you mentioned in the book they 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 predicted five hundred and ten thousand deaths, which was based on eighty five percent of people getting it and point nine percent of them dying. That's Is that right. correct? That's, That's so. Yeah, see, I've memorized all, your entire book, but um, <laughs> and that was and that was you said at the time, you know, that was what well, you say in the book. That was obviously absurd on the face of it, right? Right, and what's what really frustrated me about it is that because it was presented as oh, mathematical modelling and graphs and you know some complex terminology, people who felt they couldn't do maths felt that they couldn't pitch in and have an opinion on this. When ultimately you get to five hundred and ten thousand by multiplying by eighty five percent and then 0.9%, which means anybody should have been able to argue, well, are 85% of us really going to catch this thing? And are 0.9% of us really going to die? And there's there's no reason why any MP shouldn't be in Parliament being able to argue the case over each of those numbers. But because it was presented in this sort of, you know, expertise, people felt that they weren't able to actually pitch in and have an opinion, which is really wrong. Yeah, and I don't think people realised. I was listening to extensive interviews with Ferguson at the time, and I was, and I remember thinking he's talking about locking us down in perpetuity for sort of, a, in the way that you mentioned, for forever, kind of. It's, it's and I, I was like, do people realise how radical this guy is? And then the, we'll get on to lockdowns. I mean, the fact that he didn't follow it and had that affair, and the fact that now everyone famously with Partygate and so on was not following it. I was never shocked by this because I never thought they were going to follow it because I'm very cynical. Maybe I assumed that the elites would, would, didn't think this was for them. But do, it, what's your take on that? Is it, is your, is it the sort of most people's take that, okay, or one take I've heard a lot, that, that that just means they were never scared? Other people have claimed to me that just doesn't mean that, that they just, I don't know, had to, were getting on with their jobs or whatever it was. But it certainly looks to the layman as though they were never as scared as they were saying we should be, right? Right. I mean, there's something there is something really disturbing about it, like deep down, because there's, you know, the, the, what they were doing was obviously I, I agree that they weren't scared for themselves. But there's also this game that they play between what's legal and what's guidance. And, they, and they're laughing at people when they're doing it because you know, they know full well that there are enough, like, you know, little dictators out there that anything that they say is guidance is going to be made into effectively law. And yet they'll say that. They'll say, well, this is law and this is guidance and I'm not breaking the law so I can do what I like. And because they, they'll know it back to front. But, I mean, I just find that attitude, it's, it's, it's really, really disturbing. It is, yeah. And, and the fact that the lockdown files haven't had more impact, why do you think that is? Like, we've had these lockdown files. They basically revealed that... So much of this policy was political expediency, not medical, not science. It was just whatever Hancock came up with because they were worried about Nicola Sturgeon, etc. Why has that not had a massive radical impact? Is it because it just appeared in the Telegraph and people are annoyed that they got the exclusive or it's like, oh, that's crazy right wingers? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think a little part of it might be people who are just don't want to face what they did. To, to themselves and, and their families and, you know, what they had to go through, they can't face the idea that it wasn't worth it. You know, the sacrifices they made weren't worth it. And and I can understand why you wouldn't want to face up to that, given what some people did have to go through. Um, so, you know, although we relish it because we sort of get to say, well, told you so, for most people, it's the opposite feeling of we're being told so. 
Yeah, and you talk about the sunk cost fallacy a lot. I'm a, some sort of weirdo because I actually would like it if I was... I mean, I've wasted entire decades of my life and I can just admit it. I even I happen to be right about lockdowns and things, but even if I wasn't, I think I would, I would personally relish going, oh, look, I was wrong, but maybe I'm a weirdo. You're right, most people don't want to do that. But especially governments don't want to do it because it's like, well, you stop people seeing their loved ones or did your policies actually harm people? Did they actually cause more deaths? Did they destroy the economy and so on? So it's obviously for them, it's virtually impossible to admit. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I think I think it's going to be, as you say, for some people, and probably a large number of people, they will never, ever be able to come to just face to what's happened. So which means it just has to be buried. Right. You can't you, know, you just can't talk about it anymore because because if you do, you're going to make me look foolish or dangerous or worse. Yeah. And I did, I did want to come on to your lockdown chapter because this was um, there was I've got so many questions about it. But one thing is. Actually, this is not in the book, but this is uh, something that, that bothers me. The, the Sunday Times did a poll in March 23, so recently, and it turned out that um, still people believe in lockdowns. So not, people said that 37% said they were not strict enough. 34% said about right. 19% said too strict. And in the 18 to 24-year-old bracket, 51% say they weren't strict enough. 17% say about right and 13% too strict. So I find that incredibly disturbing. I mean, the fact that people still are not recognizing that lockdowns were a massive mistake. Hopefully your book will help, but they'll have to listen to it in the first place, which they may mm. not. You argue in the book that, that the Chinese protests, which were kind of praised by the press as brave, will, will make it harder for people to lock down next time. I'd like to believe you're right, but I'm not sure because the mainstream media is so incredible at just being hypocritical. And my podcast is called The Current Thing as a kind of joke about how they move on and we have to we have to support the next current thing. So it's very easy for the press to say, lockdowns are great. Lockdown protests in China are amazing. And they can hold that absurd contradiction and it just doesn't trouble them. They can just gaslight us into oblivion. But um, what's your take on all of that on, on people? Will, would If lockdowns happen again, would there be more resistance what is this Sunday Times poll suggests not, but what do you think? I mean, yeah, I did find that poll really quite scary as well. And I, I was actually quite shocked by it because even though I'm very aware that the majority of people don't think the way we do yet, that I didn't think it was that bad. I just really hadn't realised it was that bad. And and the, also it's that whole thing about it just being so blindingly obvious. You know, when you've had that many waves in that many places, always falling, always peaking at predictable times of year. And you think, well, they, everybody accepts the Omicron peaks were natural, right? But so surely you can accept the ones before peaked naturally. What's the difference? Why are we saying these ones are natural and these ones weren't natural when they're peaking at the same time of the year? And they're peaking when respiratory infection cases always peak so that you have peak deaths in January in the Northern Hemisphere. They will What's the difference here? Why do you think that was caused by intervention and the rest are just always like that every year? And then there's also the whole thing with Shanghai and Australia where, you know, they tried to go crazy over Omicron to start with and and it, it didn't work because they don't work. But, you know, but people sort of haven't really put two into it. It's almost like, well, you know, Omicron can peak naturally and, and those, you know, and those ones over there um, can it doesn't work for Omicron but it did work for the previous variants and, and we still need to do it for anything in the future. Yeah and you also pointed out that thing about Seattle where they, they um, 
they adapted their an existing flu test rather than wait for COVID tests. And so they, they had a peak earlier, but it was just because they started testing earlier. And it, it, basically, it behaved exactly the same. What was yeah, that point? That's really right. interesting. Yeah. Because Seattle, so as you say, Seattle started testing earlier. So they, you've got a different case wave in Seattle. But the death wave is exactly the same. Peak death is the same as other, other places in the US. But the difference is that because they were testing early in Seattle, the news was telling everyone, oh, my God, it's really bad in Seattle. So the, the people in Seattle reacted to that. So that if you look at the mobile phone data to show where people are and, you know, how much public transport is being used and people's movements, they stopped. They sort of decided to stop going to work way earlier than everyone else. So they did an earlier lockdown. And yet the death peaks exactly the same mm. because because it didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Um, so, I mean, you're, I mean, hopefully people listen to your book and realize this. Um, do you think Lord Frost suggested, when well, he's been on the podcast, and he suggested that lockdowns just revealed the relationship we actually already had with the state that had been building over the years. Whereas in your book, you say they crossed a Rubicon with this lockdown with our relationship with the state. Do you think it, it, we were already just over the years have become beholden to the state and this just exposed it? Or do you think this really changed it? I know. I think this has really changed it. And I think it's the thing is that, you know, once you get to a stage where, um, you're going against ethical principles, right? You know, we have these sort of foundational ethical principles of things like adults have a duty to protect children and not the other way around, and first do no harm, and bodily autonomy, and informed consent. And, you know, these things are really fundamental to the practice of medicine, but also, you know, to how our society works. And if you, if you, and we're also obviously all the rights that were, um, trodden on for lockdowns and if you overrule these because of whatever an emergency then then where where are you afterwards you know you can't just sort of said okay that's done now we're going to go back to being reasonable people with these rules that we live by right, well well why should we you know at what, at what point do you say that they matter or don't matter and surely the whole point of having human rights is so that in an emergency situation you've got something to reference because you don't need them when everything's okay. When everything's okay, people don't override human rights. You need them when the government wants to override human rights. And that's what we had. And yet the human rights lawyers did nothing about it. Yeah. And you had people, pundits and things on telly saying, in situations like this, human rights don't matter and, things, and crazy things like this. It's yeah, like, yeah. what are you on about? Exactly what you said. That's when we need them. And, um, and it was, what's incredible is you, you mentioned miasma theorists before, and I wanted to pick up on that because it's such a funny phrase. And it reminds me of, um, consp- it's a funny phrase to me because I'm not used to hearing it, but it reminds me of conspiracy theorists. And it reminds me of, um, you know, COVID denier and climate denier. And you mentioned that the, when, the, when, when Gup, Sunetra Gupta and the others came out with, Jay Bhattacharya came out with the Great Barrington's Declaration, there was a deliberate, a seemingly a deliberate smear campaign against them. And there was rumours that Dominic Cummings was involved. I don't know if that's, if I can legally say that or what, but I'm so paranoid because I work on an Ofcom regulated channel and I'm super paranoid about getting sued all the time. But, um, but it seems that even someone like Cummings, who's meant to be this galaxy-brained individual, fell for this kind of sort of smear tactics. And he became zealously pro-lockdown, as many people did. And, and to me, as soon as I hear a phrase denier, I kind of already think this is someone 
this, this this person's not to be trusted. Anyone because they they're trying to invoke the phrase Holocaust denier, just however consciously they're they're invoking it. Yeah, and they're saying good. climate denier, COVID denier, and you're you're immediately not engaging with my argument. You're just calling me a name, and it, it's yeah. just kind of shocking that how how that kicked him. Um, and it did in a, in a really big way. Do you remember there was one point where people were trying to call us lockdown deniers? Yeah. <laughs> did you remember that one? Yeah. It's like, well, did it happen um, or not? Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I'm pretty sure there were lockdowns. Yeah. Um, but now I've been called all sorts of names and and I still am, you know, and, and I, I sort of will have people who I seem to provoke immensely. Well, they just get angry and they just go on the attack about everything that I say. And and I don't know how these people don't, I mean, I, some of them maybe are being paid to do it, who knows, but some of them I think aren't, and they are just hysterically angry at me. And I just don't see how they can't step back and read what they, they've said and compare it to what I've said and not realise that they are the baddie. <laughs> they yeah. don't see it, you know, because I've, I've always been painfully polite, always, to everybody, because... You know, there's this thing, isn't there? The rules are different for our side. We're not allowed to put a step wrong. We're not allowed to. We're not allowed to ever do anything that you know is seem unseeming. So we have to be ever so careful about everything. So I always have been. Well, you've been incredibly polite and incredibly thorough, and medic. You know, using your medical training. I mean, a dangerous crank like me who just mouths off absolutely is in a different category. But you've been so careful, and also people have even said things like, "Who's funding Dr. Claire Cray when you haven't made any money off any of this?" No, I mean, I've, yeah, it's been a financial disaster for me, really. So I had a, <laughs> my last salary was in May 2020, and I've had no salary or pension since. And at one point early on, I did a sort of buy me a coffee thing and got £78 in total for some very lovely people. Thank you to them. Um, and the Royal College of Pathologists ticked me off for doing that. So I, I removed that from my Twitter profile. And um, and then I've had I've had nothing and the thing that always gets me because obviously it's lovely for people who want to hate me or want to dismiss me to say oh she's funded by Russia I've been told that or I'm funded by China or I've been funded by the Koch brothers who I've never met or don't know them um and um I, I just love this idea that they think there's somebody out there with money and they think, what should I do with my money? I know there's this pathologist over there who's talking about aerosols and droplets and graphs. Let's give it to her. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah, to advance our political cause. Yeah, and it does seem very ridiculous. I mean, one thing you get on this side of things a lot is, or whatever side, I don't know side sounds weird we may not even be on the same side but but uh, you know you get called a grifter and i always think it's a funny grift isn't it wasted 11 years in the comedy industry realized there was you know no way someone like me could proceed there so started saying all the least popular things in my industry and in the country and um can't even admit what i that i work for gb news in like my football team and then they found out after two years you know what i mean like living kind of fear and kind of uh, as a despised uh, you know, person in the corner of the culture, that's a grift. It's like it's a pretty bad grift, isn't it? Because I, <laughs> I'd rather be on the BBC on that grift. That looks a lot better. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And also when you know that there's so much money that's been sloshing around to like, you know, to not least cause, you know, get people to attack me on Twitter. You know, that's a real thing where government has um, contracted companies to smear me. Like, oh, not just me, obviously, but that's really happened. So there was... 
a company called Logically AI that was set up by a 27-year-old and who he remains the only shareholder director of this company. And he was contracted for over a million pounds to, you know, deal with the misinformation. And um, uh, this was back in 2021. And the Heart Group, um, who are, you know, doctors and professionals and academics, and we all work together, sharing information, teaching each other and um, challenging each other as well. And we had a private like Slack type channel. It wasn't actually Slack, but it was the same kind of thing where you could have conversations with each other and share things. Um, and it was illegally hacked. And 24 hours after this illegal hack, we get this message from this company, Logically AI, telling us they've got hold of what the result of this hack and they're going to publish it. And did we have any you know, response that we wanted to make for when they published it? So they, they did that. They published all of our private messages. And they pulled out parts of it to try and smear it. And I think some of the smearing might have worked, actually. So at the time, we were talking to a handful of politicians who, none of whom agreed with what we were saying, but they at least were listening, right? And we were just about able to get their ear. Um, and they all stopped talking to us immediately after this had happened. And we haven't really been able to talk to them much since. Um, and, you know, certain aspects of it were pulled out and used to discredit us. But the main piece that they wrote on the time to smear us said things like, these people believe lockdowns don't work. These people think masks don't work. And that was literally a smear in 2021. It wasn't, you know, and, and it, it's really hard to respond to that kind of an attack because you're like, well, yeah, we, we do. And it's true. And, and I had I had a, a really strange experience in January 2021, where um, Neil O'Brien, who at the time was a minister in the Justice Department, was um, decided to do a sort of public sort of shaming of me on Twitter, where he pulled out tweets that I'd said, and was saying, you know, she got this wrong. So that a couple of them were things that I'd got wrong. So fair enough. But the vast majority of the ones he was pulling out were just me stating facts. So I'd say things like A&E admissions were, you know, substantially down during the lockdowns. And, and at the time, the January 2021, I was saying, look, people are not coming to A&E at the moment. And here's the data. And he was sharing that and saying, she said this. He literally was saying, look at her. She said this as if it couldn't be true. Because, you know, how can you have lower A&E admissions in the middle of a pandemic wave? And he just was so sure that that must be the truth, that the fact that data showed it wasn't true didn't matter to him. And he could still point his finger at me and say, let's all laugh at her because she thinks this thing is true. That happens to be true. So how do you defend yourself when your <laughs> the accusation is that you're saying something that's true? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, that's a tricky one. And they are incredibly effective, those those smear campaigns. I mean, look at Stop Funding Hate. GB News still can't get advertising uh, properly because of it. So it is, yeah, it's incredible how effective that is. Well, I'm sorry you've been through that. I don't even see why you couldn't have a copy, by the way. I rely on buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. I absolutely ask for copies. It's a great uh, app. But I don't see really why you couldn't. Is I understand you're a doctor, but if you're someone who's not been able to do your normal work because of following this and writing books like this and things what's the problem with you receiving donations why is that so unethical so i mean i i completely agree i didn't think there was a problem at all but 
when the college was objecting to me doing it at the time I just thought I'm not going to rock the boat any further but I've since relaxed on that so in the last month I've sort of set it up so I can have substract substack subscribers which I haven't had before okay and you know I've got the book out now I mean none of it is going to make me money right (laughs) so just to be completely clear on this the book's quite expensive to produce actually and much more than I'd realized you know because I've had to pay for an editor, and I did have to pay for an editor, you know, and an editor, and I also paid him again to go through to check for defamation because I didn't want to get sued. And then I paid for a typesetting and the book cover, and, and the t- you know, it all sort of adds up. Um, and then I also paid, had the audio book done professionally, which was a lot of money. And so um, having, having, I've had good sales. I've sold about a thousand copies so far in a month, which I'm quite pleased about. Um, but that means I'm halfway to breaking even. So, you know, this is not going to make me no. wealthy. This is not about the money. Well, hopefully we'll sell you a few more books and we'll go to your Substack at the end. But we're, I've just got a few more questions about, we were talking about lockdowns. Why is Sweden, why were they so different? You mentioned that their prime minister was a welder and didn't have his head in the clouds. And you talk about cloud COVID land throughout the book, so it's a kind of a, a, a metaphor there. But but what is, was it that simple? I mean, and, and they Sweden was sort of a constant re- rebuke. They were sort of not only a rebuke to the mainstream narrative they also are arguably a rebuke to the more conspiracy side who think this is all planned you know why allow sweden then to do to be different it, it is an interesting question because even if it's all it did seem to be a, a global response because everyone went along with it but sweden kind of like ruined everything for everyone in a sense so why were sweden mm. so why do you think they were able to just resist all this and just go for this more you know uh, what, what would you call it a behaviorist approach let people just you know behave as, as they want and they'll naturally yeah. do some things reduce some contacts and but we won't do an enforced yeah. lockdown really um, so one of the reasons is that they actually have legislation that says that the government can't overrule public health officials. They've got it sort of separated in law. And so they happen to have a public health official who was a great guy, who I think has had a really difficult time of it. So, Tegnell. Yeah, Angus Tegnell, yeah. And um, well, one of the things that's really odd about Sweden is the sort of narrative on Sweden. So people believe that they did have a lockdown, that, you know, okay, it might not have been a requirement, but they basically didn't go, the shops were basically shut and the restaurants were, but it's just not true. You know, there's video footage that people were trying to share at the time saying, look at this, this is what they're doing here. They're in the shops, they're behaving normally. And and it, people just don't, they won't believe that that happened because it's in such a conflict to what their own beliefs are. Yeah, um, I've, I've had that one used against me on Twitter by some of the sort of woke side. No, they basically had a lockdown anyway. It's like yeah. something like 10% wore masks. They, they barely took up masks. And we know from Andrew Tate going to visit at the height of it that they, everything was open because, it, like you say, people, people like him were making videos. So they didn't have a lockdown. Anyway, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. Right, and the same, the other place is Japan. So Japan also has law that you can't lock down. And, yeah. the, and what I love about those two countries is that you know, you can do that. You can have a law that says you you are not able to have a lockdown, right? And that, you know, that's something we can aspire to one day having. Um, yeah, I mean, I, maybe I'm just dreaming. Well, that would be great, wouldn't it? I mean, that is what we absolutely need now. But, and, but some people cite the Sweden excess deaths and some people say, and I don't know, I'm not very good at following data, I get bored, but some people say, They've had higher deaths. Some people say they've had lower deaths. It certainly hasn't been. I think we can, even the layman can see it's not been radically different, right? Right. So in terms of the kind of, you know, did more people die? There were more people dying in Sweden earlier on than their neighbouring countries. 
and a lot of people saying that was because they have different way of running care homes. They have really large care homes and they were getting big outbreaks in their care homes and they'd moved patients from hospitals into care homes or whatever. Um, but there's, you know, there was, yeah, but, but Sweden essentially just had the same trajectory as, as other places in Europe and their neighboring countries have caught up since with COVID deaths. So even if they might have got away with it, they haven't done in the long run. But the other question on Sweden is the, one around the safe and effectives because they are um, they've not had so many excess deaths more recently either. So you know a lot of us have been quite concerned about the level of excess deaths that are happening now um, or, or throughout 2022 when you'd hope that the opposite would happen because if you've had a period where lots of people have died, then you should have a period subsequently where fewer people die because they're already dead. And we haven't really had that period yet. We're still waiting for it. Um, and in Sweden, they have not had so many deaths of late. And I don't know why that is. There's a variety of reasons it might be. But one of the things that's interesting about Sweden is they have the lowest risk in Europe for heart disease. So their kind of underlying health is really good. Um, so me and several other people were really concerned about the safe and effective causing heart disease. And I think everyone's really familiar with the story about myocarditis and it um, you know, being relatively rare, um, although there's been studies recently showing it's that there's a sort of subclinical myocarditis where people have had heart damage to the tune of about 3% after boosters. So not as rare as was claimed by any means. But these were people, what we don't know is the long-term effect of that. And what it can cause is heart scarring, which can lead to a risk of a rhythm problem and potentially sudden death. So there's a risk of sudden death built into that problem. But on top of that, there's good evidence of a problem with sort of the more common type of heart disease, where you have narrowing of the coronary arteries from atherosclerosis that blocks off the blood supply, and then you get a bit of dead heart and a heart attack. And we know this from... Um, like first principles in terms of the kind of pathology you'd expect from these drugs. And then we've had um, this correlation with the number of cardiac arrests, which just rose, the sort of ambulance calls for cardiac arrests just did this stepwise change at the point of the vaccine rollout. And there's a study done in Israel showing young people had higher numbers of cardiac calls to ambulances, and it was correlated really well with when they're vaccinated and not at all with when the COVID waves were. But more, most importantly for me is the data from South Australia because they didn't have any COVID. So they by, they didn't really have a thousand cases across the entire state by the mid-December of 2021. But at the same point, so from kind of June, to, well, actually really from April time, but then getting really bad in June, when they went to young people, they had this massive spike of young people in A&E with heart problems and they hadn't had COVID, they had just injected them. So there is this problem with heart disease. And we've also seen post-mortems where people have been shown to have had um, deaths like four months after their last jab, but there were jab-related deaths with vascular damage that caused the heart to have a problem. And finally, there was this one study where they looked at markers in the blood that sort of give you a prediction of your risk factors for having a heart attack. And the markers in the vaccinated went up massively as if they were all suddenly smoking 40 a day, you know, this huge stepwise change in risk. 
um, for that kind of heart disease. So there's reason to be concerned that that is why we're having had these excess deaths. And Sweden has really low underlying risks for that kind of heart disease. So if you've got a population where they haven't got anything there to begin with, and then you're adding the extra insults, it's not going to have the same impact as if you've got a bunch of people who are a bit overweight and there's a fair amount of diabetes in the population. And you've got, you know, if you've already got some disease ready to add on to, then of course you're going to see more of an impact. And Sweden has the lowest rate of that kind of heart disease in Europe. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, well, people might be saying, why haven't I asked you more about the safe and effective treatment? And that is because you've you're writing a sequel and you want, you're going to talk about it more in the sequel. So we just focus on this first book. So you've done expired and you've got another one already. What is it already written or partly written? Um, yeah, it, it's, it's almost there. It's basically at the editing stage, which I find really, really difficult. Okay. <laughs> so it's taking more time than the writing itself is trying to pull it all together. And you have but a yeah, title it's not already. Far off. But I don't want people to feel like they have to read two books. So the first book is kind of a stand a standalone book about viral spread and susceptibility. And, you know, it, it works as a unit on its own. And I sort of very deliberately pulled out what I'd put in around um, the safe and effective. And basically all the controversial stuff is ending up in book two. So okay. the stuff about origins and about treatments and about, the, you know, all of that is going to be in a separate book so that, it can be attacked separately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. What's that one going to be called? It's called Spiked, a shut in the COVID dark. There you go. So you can imagine how that one's going to go. But the, uh, but this one, this one is more sort of just get the normies in, get the facts. And it is very interesting. The stuff about droplets I didn't know about, stuff about airborne, you know, there's loads of stuff I learned. Not that I'm an expert, but loads of things I didn't know. And um, what do you think is going to happen in future with, with lockdowns then? Do you think... Do you think they'll use them for climate lockdowns and so on? Do you think they're going to use this sort of nudge stuff again and the lockdown approach for other things? Well, I mean, I do. I fear that. Yeah, I do fear that. And I think they're almost not hiding that. It's just that you have to look in the right places for it. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw, but today there was a quite a few headlines because um, the government have just published their latest sort of risk analysis for the future. So they'll get a bunch of civil servants to say, well, we know what's the risk to the country of the following, you know, terrorist attack or some kind of, you know, natural disaster or, or a pandemic. Or, and then they've sort of put numbers to it all. And honestly, I mean, some of these numbers do look like they're plucked from thin air, but they've come up with this idea that there's a 25% chance we're going to have a pandemic that's going to kill millions of people. <laughs> and it's really almost hysterical if you read that, what, what they're claiming. Um, but what matters ultimately with whether or not we have a lockdown is how people react to it. So they know that survey you quoted before is chilling because that would be a disaster. But if people, you know, if we can get through to enough people about how ineffective it is, then it doesn't matter too much what the government try to do about it because people won't go along with it anymore. Yeah, I was a bit disturbed when Bill Gates called this pandemic one. I was like, how many of these things is he planning? But um, that's that's a joke, YouTube. We'll probably have to edit that out. <laughs> that's a, just a joke, guys. But um, I forgot to ask you when I talked about that Sunday Times poll, why do you think young people, 51% of them, said that the lockdown was not strict enough? Toby's theory, Toby Young, we talked about this on my podcast, the other podcast, The Weekly Skeptic, was that it was a kind of virtue signaling. Yeah. It's, it's proving, like, look how much we care about your granny and stuff. We, we're just going to lock ourselves in our houses forever because we care, because it's become synonymous, weirdly, with caring. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. That, the, that if you're, you know, if you, 
if you're sort of living life and you're not paying attention to the data, which is a very reasonable thing to do when you're young, I think, if hopefully you're getting to do that, then you'll think, well, they're asking me whether lockdowns, we should have locked down harder. Well, they keep telling me lots of people died. So, yeah, probably we should have done. I think that's about the level of the logic, isn't it? There's, you know, the, the idea that the two are not related is quite a hard one to get your head around if you've not paid attention. Yeah, or that the lockdown is actually damaging and you should actually yeah. be embarrassed to say you're pro-lockdown. But we may we may get there, but apparently we're not quite there yet, at least according to that poll. I mean, here's a big question. How is it? How has the whole COVID era sort of changed you overall? Because, you know, you talked at the start about how you believed in things. A lot of people became quite red-pilled. They started to look at other areas where we, where the mainstream narrative might be questionable. Some people then became black-pilled and became nihilistic. A lot of people returned to God eventually. They, they said, hang on, there's a lot, so much evil happening in the world and things are so strange. They actually returned to Christianity and things like that. That's happened a lot. Um, I don't know. Have you had any sort of fundamental, you know, change in your outlook as a result of, of all this? Yeah, and it's not, it, you know, a lot of it has actually been quite positive. So th- there are sort of certain things like um, I was quite an anxious person for many years. And I, and I have stopped having, you know, ever since Neil O'Brien attacked me, I've not had any anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> That's the and cure. I just, yeah, I've had this sort of lovely sense of 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 sort of listening to that kind of um, gut feeling and being able to um, sort of do what my gut's telling me to do, which I've not always been able to do in life. And when you're not doing what your gut's telling you to do, that is when you end up with anxiety. And you because you, you know deep down you're not you know you're not quite doing the right thing. That's sort of what it's telling you, isn't it? And so yeah, I started listening to my gut, and I absolutely agree with the thing around seeing evil and needing something to counter it and. I um, um, I was quite a sort of uh, an active atheist, I think you could say. You know, I read all the books, and I'm um, not anymore. Oh, good. Well, that's another good thing that's happened. And um, we didn't want to get. I knew you didn't want to get into religion too much, but it's really interesting. You 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 say you read all the books. You mean the sort of Christopher Hitchens, the Richard Dawkins, mm. and all the mm. Sam Harris, all that type of thing. But now you've realised what what I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you what you've seen that there's so much evil that you now think there might be god might be the the counter force or or what is it well i mean it's really really tricky to kind of put into words and i feel like often i don't really have the vocabulary for it to be honest because it's sort of because because i've spent all my years of my life not reading this stuff and so suddenly i'm kind of i feel naked and naive around the whole subject um and um but i feel like there are aspects to this where I was prepared for it and you know it it was you know there are things that happened in my life prior to this which don't seem accidental and where I've had moments of feeling um goodness um of feeling as if I'm being blessed frankly okay so you and you sort of feel like you're 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 blessed and you're in the sort of right position to fight this this battle and you've got the right abilities and things like that yeah and maybe also feeling protected so you know if you told me back in 2020 2021 that I would still be fighting it now I would have um told you to shut up and go away because I did not want to be hearing that at the time 
And I would have also have, you know, that, that whole thing would have been very confusing to me that it could still be going on this long. Um, but also I would have... Um, if you'd thought it was going to be going on this long, you'd have, you'd have not wanted to face it at the time, basically. Yeah, but there's also something about it. I would have thought it would have been a negative thing, right? I would have thought ah. if I was still fighting it now, it would have been a, a. It must mean that we were, you know, failing, and that would be. It would right. be terrible to still feel like that. And I haven't felt worse and worse. I felt better and better about it over time. Ah. And and you know, people have kept saying to me that they look at me and they think that I'm protected, somehow. And and I kind of do feel that sort of sense of protection somehow from something. And that, you know, if you look at me dispassionately and you see, well, she's, you know, thrown her neck on the line, put her head above the parapet, attacked the whole time. Who knows what's next for her in terms of being able to earn money or career or whatever else. You'd think that would be a bit of a shitty place to be. <laughs> but I don't feel I'm in a bad place. Well, that's great. And even aside from anything sort of too metaphysical, you know, just telling the truth, I think it does that. I mean, in my own humble way, you know, I started saying my own my opinions and and how much I hated the comedy industry and saying things that were totally at odds with it. And, and after spending 11 years in it, that was that seemed crazy. And, you know, anytime we sort of tell the truth and you, you don't know where it's going to lead, you, you give up something, whatever you were trying to do, you sort of you, you seem to have to sacrifice something with, with the truth. And then you, you move into the unknown, but it just just feels much better to just be be living according to, like you say, your gut, your intuition, telling the truth without really worrying about it. That's just a much better place to be, isn't it? Oh, completely, completely. I highly recommend it to anybody out there who's thinking of doing it. <laughs> yeah, because I get all the time. Yeah, I, well, someone came up to me last night, I was at an event, and they shook my hand and thanked me for what I was doing and said, I can't, I can't say anything on social media because of my job. I was like, you're still saying that now in 2023. Like, <laughs> come on. You, you, if you want me to fight this battle for you, we're not going to win. You can't win with a handful of people who are speaking the truth. You only win when everybody starts speaking the truth. Yeah, and I get that all the time. I get, thanks for fighting for us. Thanks for your podcast. And I, and I always, and, you know, they always say, I'm, I can't be out in the open like that. But so thanks for doing it. And yeah, I always think, partly I think, well, you can, you can be and you have to be. The other part of me thinks, mm. okay, I'll do it for you. Keep buying me the coffees. But like, <laughs> because that's kind of my thing. It's like, that's the crazy guy that'll tell the truth. And uh, that's my USP. But, um, but I think they should be doing it. I mean, all these people at work putting their emails and their pronouns in their signature, or whatever, they, they, sh- they, they shouldn't, they've got to stop doing it. I understand why they don't. They've got three kids and a mortgage. I totally understand it. That really, everyone has to tell the truth, and then all the, this madness would end. Yeah, Although we'd have to go back to doing normal jobs. But <laughs> for you, it'd probably yeah. be a lot better because you've, you've got your yeah. actual qualifications. I mean, there's, so much, there's something about the levels at which the truth isn't told, though. That's quite frightening, isn't there? Because there's people who are. Um, if you can't tell, you know, raise a concern with your boss about something, right? And they, that seems really minor, but that creates a culture, and that culture is you know means that when there's something you really have to raise you can't raise that either because there's no openness around what you're allowed to talk about because you you created a lack of openness yourself by not talking about something minor and so it starts right there you know you have to be able to say everything without fear because otherwise you create a situation where you can't say anything absolutely very well put do you think that will start to change because we're seeing with this banking scandal with coots 
woke banking hasn't gone very well for them. I just saw an article today, just before we started this, didn't even have time to read it, but it said that Disney has stopped hiring diversity, uh, inclusion, and equity people. I haven't read up on that yet, but I see little things all the time that it's changing. So I often ask on this podcast, how do we win the culture war? I wasn't necessarily going to ask you because you're sort of a medical expert. I didn't want to necessarily make you answer that, but you're virtually saying it now. So do you think there's a tide turning or how can we win this thing? Oh, you know, I wish I had the answer to that, Nick. I've been looking for the answer to that for quite a long time. And 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 for a long time, I thought it would come from politicians. And, you know, maybe they still have a role to play, but I, I, I despair of politics and it's too slow to do anything anyway. And and I think it can come from regular people. I really do think it can. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe you've got to sort of start somewhere. If you're scared to say something big, then say something small. Like there must be something small you can say. All right. And do you think, do you think Britain, I sometimes ask on the podcast, I'm kind of obsessed with this question of whether the country is finished, Britain or England. And it perhaps ties in with, at the end of the book, you write a letter to your children. And it's a touching moment in the book, but it also feels like you're sort of saying we, we've let them down with the way we behave, particularly over COVID. So, you know, is the country finished or is there hope? And, um, and what do we need to do to, you know, not let these sort of dark forces that led, led to all this happening to, to win? So I, I don't know the time frames of all of this, right? But ultimately, there's going to be a, a brighter future at some point. We might be dead, but it'll be there at some point. There'll be a brighter future. And at that point, you sort of have to start thinking, well, what happens? You know, when we win, what happens? And I think there's a real danger of um, people throwing away a lot of good things because they're so angry and because they saw things that were done that were harmful. And I think we've got to try and resist throwing too much out. I think change has to be built on the good things that we had that, and you know, obviously things need changing. And in some ways, the fact that things have gone very wrong is a good thing. Like when things go a bit bad, they get plastered up and fixed and you move on and it's just you know it becomes more and more rickety but when things have actually really really been shown to cause harm you've got a chance to really make sure things are changed for the better and and we need to do that in a way that doesn't destroy what we had what we had pre-covid if you know what i mean okay so you think we can get back to that you think we can get back to sort of pre-covid normality or is it a different? Is it just a new world we're in now? It's something new that's going to happen. I think I think it is going to be new. It's going to be new um, because there are sort of fundamental aspects of the way things are set up that can't be allowed to go on. You know, the kind of corporatism that we're in is mm. is really really harmful, and we can't just go back to a situation that allows that to happen again. Um, but that doesn't mean saying that capitalism is the problem if you know what i mean we've got the capitalism when it's governed well and when you encourage innovation and you reward entrepreneurs at a, at a you know the smallest level which we haven't had for a long time really if you let that happen then you get you know creativity and growth but if you allow it to develop into corporatism where they've got massive and power and control over things then that's incredibly harmful and and when the governments then collude then that's just a complete disaster um so if we can go back to a stage where we use capitalism in a productive way but cap it so that it doesn't become corporatism then then i think we could have a happier future 
Okay, brilliant. And speaking of capitalism, by Claire's book expired, so it's on Audible. <laughs> and is it is it also? Oh, here we go. There's the. Is that the? Is that the? What what copy is that? Is that a hardback or is that um? Oh, it's only in paperback. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah. expired COVID: The Untold Story. Make sure you get it on Audible or in presumably in good bookshops, unless uh, woke people are hiding it. No, it's not in good bookshops okay. because <laughs> it's re- so I've learned all about the publishing industry and it's all really hard work. And um, I did look into avoiding Amazon altogether. I wanted to do it through like independent warehousing and um, publishing and printing and everything. And it's just completely not viable doing it that way. <clears throat> so Amazon is a success because it's actually really good at what it does. So I've just sort of sod it. And you kind of have to use it because it's where the marketing happens anyway. So I'm using Amazon. And I said to Amazon, you can have it. Because by the time you're trying to get stuff into bookshops, then it becomes a massive headache for really very little extra gain. So I know I've got a lot of fans who are very disappointed in me in that and haven't bought it as a result, but I will try and do some kind of events they can buy it from me directly. Well, these uh, woke booksellers would have hidden it anyway, Claire. It wouldn't have been worth it. They they always do this, trust me. And uh, they're doing it in libraries now as well, we found. So go to Amazon or Audible uh, for the book Expired. And it's at Claire Craig Path on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, anyway, on your Substack, what's your Substack? I'm Dr. Claire Craig. Dr. Claire Craig. All right, so make sure you go to that. And thanks so much for doing the show. Thanks ever so much for having me, Nick. Thank you. No worries. <laughs>